Scaling Up Nation, how vulnerable are you and how secure are your passwords? This is a question that I think a lot of us are asking more and more with all of the reports that we're hearing on the news. One of the easiest things that you can do is use a program for your passwords like LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate passwords. It will store it behind a master password. It will allow you to share it with people without actually giving them your passwords. It even will autofill on websites. There's so many features that LastPass offers that makes your online experience so much safer. I've been using LastPass for years and you can start using it too by going to scalinguph2o.com forward slash LastPass to see if one of their offerings is right for you and folks, they even have free programs. So don't leave yourself vulnerable any longer than you have to. Go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash LastPass. Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast where we scale up on our knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. My name is Trace Blackmore, your host for Scaling Up H2O, and I hope you joined us for last week because we did our 200th episode. We heard from many of you out there in the Scaling Up Nation. That was a fun episode to record, and I have to tell you, if you asked me four years ago, 199 episodes ago, if I thought that the Scaling Up podcast was going to mean so much to everybody, uh, was going to be in so many countries, have so many downloads, and just, just get such great feedback when I go to any event and people like yourself in the Scaling Up Nation come up to me and thank me for certain episodes or give me some ideas, I would have just not thought that that would have been possible. And it's been an incredible ride. I'm going to continue this ride. I always talk about this, and it sounds like I'm saying that we're going away. We're not going anywhere. We are just getting started. I am just, again, very humbled by all the episodes that we have and all the great members of the Scaling Up Nation that we have gathered along the way. This podcast would not be possible if it were not for you. And of course, on episodes like Pinks and Blues, where they are all about you, you all call in, you write in, you get me, however you get me, your question, your concern, and then we use an entire episode to talk about it. Well, just because this is episode 201, it doesn't mean we don't need your help anymore. More than ever, 200 episodes, folks, we have run out of everything possible I know what to talk about. So now it is definitely up to you. So do not keep whatever you want us to talk about to yourself. Let us know what that is. Go to scalinguph2o.com and go to our show ideas page or record a voicemail and we will play your voice on the air asking a question. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we heard from several of the Scaling Up members. We heard their actual voices on the podcast last week talking about what the podcast has meant to them. So again, thank you for all those people that did that. And additionally, we even had several people that did James's challenge last week, and they went on the Scaling Up H2O Facebook page 
and they played bingo. Well, you know if you're the winner of that because I've already contacted you. So your t-shirt is on the way. I hope you wear that with pride. That is your uniform that you are part of the Scaling Up Nation. And speaking of James's challenge, we have another one hot off the press for you right now. Hello, Scaling Up Nation. The next James's challenge as we grow as an industrial water treatment professional drop by drop is... Use your test kit to test your home's water. You may have done this when you first got your test kit, but have you done it lately? If you have a home water softener, do you know the hardness of your home's water now? Have you tested the disinfectant in your water? Have you shown your family and friends your adept skills at testing water? Even better, have you shown them the results of running a microbiological dip slide on their drinking water? It could be interesting. Be sure to share your experience on LinkedIn by tagging it with hashtag JC21 and hashtag ScalingUpH2O. This is James McDonald, and I look forward to seeing what you share. James, I remember when I first started working with my dad, I was at the kitchen table and I would run samples for him. I had no idea what I was doing. I was counting drops. I was telling him how many drops it took for one color to change into another color. And then when my dad started training me on how to run service, I had to learn how to work from a test kit. And one of the things my dad had me do was test every water I could find. So I tested our house water. I tested the cold water, the hot water. I tested water outside coming out of the spigot. Uh, I went to our neighborhood pool. I tested that. I went to our neighbor's house. I tested that water. I would find every single water sample I could find, and then I would test it. Now, most of them were fairly similar, but what that allowed me to do was create a rhythm to find out how long the tests took and what was more advantageous for me to do before a certain test. I think you've heard me talk on another show where I've made the comment, we test and the test should be waiting on us, not the other way around if we're going to be efficient. Well, I would not have been able to set up a system on how to run tests had my dad not originally got me to test our home's water. So I, I hope that's helpful for all the new people out there. And uh, I'm also surprised for the water treaters out there that really don't know what their home water is like. You might want to put a carbon filter on that. You might want to put a softener on that. Folks, we're the water professionals, and that's why the cobbler's kids have no shoes. So hopefully today with James's challenge, you will learn what is in your water. There's no doubt about it. We are in a hiring crisis in the United States. I'm not sure how that looks outside the United States, but there are so many people that just aren't part of the labor pool right now. And that means restaurants aren't opening or they're opening late or the seating times are incredibly long because they don't have servers. For us water treaters, it means that as we grow, we can't find the valuable people that we need to make sure that our customers get the service that they've come to expect. 
So because there's a hiring shortage, we need to make sure that we use our time properly, that every second that we put into hiring, that we are using a system. Good friend of mine, Mike Hill, is going to join us today, and he's going to talk about what is a good procedure for us to use during hiring, and what are some barometers that we can put around it to make sure that what we are doing is actually working. Please welcome Mike Hill. My lab partner today is Mike Hill of Trenton Consulting. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Well, thanks, Trace. Good to be here. Uh, exciting to do your podcast. Heard a lot about it. Well, we, we appreciate you being here. And we're going to be talking about a topic today that everybody has on their mind. And I'm sure glad you're here because we all have questions about it. And of course, that topic is hiring. But before we get to that, do you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a little about yourself? Sure. Um, Trace, early in my career, I worked for Ernst & Young. I uh, did so in a consulting capacity. I uh, did a lot of technology work, system selections, implementations. Went on from uh, Ernst & Young and uh, worked and became the National Director of Internal Consulting for Prudential. From there, I uh, was on the merger integration team that formed Verizon. In that role, I got a fun event to uh, head up the spinoff companies uh, when that merger was complete. It was shortly after that, had a major life event uh, occur. Uh, unfortunately, my first wife passed away, and so I stepped out of my normal corporate career, and that's when I started uh, Trenton Consulting, then known as Mike Hill and Associates, and began my journey as a consultant. In that role, I've had a chance to do a lot of things, uh, served as a CEO, COO, CFO, uh, more recently, uh, I've had the fun event of uh, writing a book and uh, creating a YouTube channel. So a little bit about me. Well, we're going to be talking about something that you know a lot about. As I alluded to, we're talking about hiring. So I'm just going to start off right out of the bat. Why is hiring so hard? Yeah, It is a, one of the frustrations for all of us as executives. And one of the reasons it's hard uh is because it's not our sweet spot. It's not uh, the thing that we love to do the most. We got into the business we're in because we're either good mechanically in the business or we're good at sales. And so we'd rather be doing that. Uh, that's what all of us are wired to do is what we like, do what we like to do best. And hiring's just not one of those things. It becomes sort of a nuisance for us. And so uh, I can tell you a story, in fact, of a business that uh, was a client that hiring was a nuisance. This was a multi-million dollar commercial real estate company, very successful financially, but the founder uh, hired me. His sons were starting in the business, were taking over the business, and he hired me because when the sons took over, turnover went through the roof. And so uh, i began to do some analysis. And one of the things I do when I do uh, work with clients is I'll begin to meet with people personally. And so I set up meetings with probably 10 or 15 people. And the, the anger in the room was just palpable. It was just, uh, you just realized there was such a high frustration rate in the company. And they all talked about they were looking for jobs and this, that, and the other. And uh, ultimately, the CEO, the new CEO, was a super salesman, a charismatic guy, great guy. 
But Hiram was, because he was a super salesman, Hiram was just not a, a priority. And as a result, they had a, a turnover rate of 10, 20%. So this gets to sort of the why, if I can carry on, of why hiring is so important. Because, you know, the obvious reasons we think about hiring uh, is the effect, the negative effect it can have on customer service or uh, other employees in the building. But one of the unspoken things about uh, hiring is the cost. Uh, SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, uh, did a study, I think in 2015 or 16, where they actually studied the cost of uh, lost cost of hiring or, or the cost of turnover. And they essentially report in this uh, article that the cost of turnover is about 33% of the annual wage of the employee. And so if you take a, an annual wage of $45,000 and think about of a turnover cost of $15,000, it's one of those things that executives don't think about the real cost to them. About a third of that, $5,000, is in uh, hard fees, recruiting fees, a training cost, um, specific things you have to spend in the company. The other 67% is soft costs, the loss in productivity, the time that you and your executive management team have to spend uh, hiring. And so one of the things I talk to about, uh, to companies about, is why in, uh, hiring is so important is because you want to do it right. You want to keep that turnover rate as low as possible to keep those expenses down, and obviously, as a result, keep customer service and employee satisfaction high. Well, you mentioned training. I know that's huge in any industry. Uh, I know our industry, so I can say especially in ours. And in order for somebody to truly know what it is that they need to do on this new job that they were hired for, somebody who's doing that job at a very high level now needs to reduce their output because they're training that person. So we're reducing the output, we're doubling the payroll, and oh my goodness, what happens if they don't work out? And so that's exactly the point. Uh, that person will now has lack of productivity because they're training the other person. And now if that person leaves, now that person is working twice as many hours to maintain that same level of uh, quality assurance you have for your clients. When you started your business, whatever business you're in, you had high standards. And it's the reason your business is successful, because people recognize the quality of the work that you do. And every person that you hire is going to represent or not represent that same quality. And so that training becomes critical in not only training the person on the physical aspects of the job, uh, but certainly the values that you impart, the things that drive you to create a, a high-quality company that you started. How do we even start this process? I know a lot of people hire, but they just hire because somebody needed a job or somebody knew somebody that knew somebody. I'm sure there's a better process out there. What should we be doing to start the process? There's a motivational uh, speaker, he's deceased now, but people will remember Zig Ziglar from back in the day, well-known. And one of the things he always said is, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. <laughs> there you go. And so uh, the concept is we have to know, first of all, the step one is we, know, we need to know what we're hiring for. 
And you as a CEO or whatever your role is in the company, you may not know that position specifically. And so you've got to uh, do the intelligence to find out the details of that position so that you have a good quality hiring process, you have a good uh, job description, so you can make sure that you know what you're aiming for. So that's sort of the starter place. A good job description is going to have a description, relational skills, decision responsibilities, uh, management skills, certifications, technical skills, those types of things that you need to detail out. Because for both sides, the person that applying needs to understand the job, and you certainly need to understand what you're hiring for. Let's fast forward a little bit. Let's say we wrote the job description, we hired the person, it worked out very well. Of the people that you work with, how often do people use that job description to evaluate the success of that person or make sure that the expectations are being met? So uh, a, a good performance review process certainly needs to be in line with the responsibilities of the job. But uh, if you think about the typical job responsibilities, you even as a CEO or whatever your responsibility is in a company, you're probably only going to get it about 80% right most of the time. So we know that most job descriptions, it's the 80-20 rule, that 80, it's going to describe 80%, 20% it's not. So we're not going to refer back to that job description very often, but that instrument we're going to use to evaluate should em- embody the responsibilities of that employee for a good evaluation. So now we've got a good job description written. What do we do with it? I'd put it in their HR file and uh, focus on the quality of the job that they're doing now. Make sure that someone is mentoring them. When you bring somebody in, if let's go that direction, when you bring somebody in uh, for the first day, we need to be prepared as a company uh, to have that person on board. So often, uh, and I would say more than 50% of the companies I work with, when the employee shows up, they're completely uh, unready for that new employee. They don't have their log on set up. They don't have the equipment that the employee needs. Uh, They don't have the training prepared. The rest of the staff they're going to be working with often don't even know that the employee is starting that day. And so it can be a very uncomfortable experience for a new hire if a company shows that lack of preparedness uh, on that first day. So moving towards making sure that you have the right processes and checklist in place to embrace that new employee, uh, even potentially have a mentor. Uh, I always suggest you take people out their first day at work. Just those little things will create somebody that wants to stay for a lifetime. Is there a better way than another to find applicants? There's really not, but I'm going to tell you the suite of tools and uh, approaches out there to find employees. And so uh, when we use them and how we use them, it depends. And so there's recruiters, executive recruiters and staffing agencies, that's one. Cloud services, we're all familiar, uh, zip recruiting, uh, Indeed, those types of tools. And then there's something that a lot of companies use called an applicant tracking system. And that's when you're a, a little larger company, you have an HR department, and you actually have software that walks you through the processes of recruiting all the way through onboarding, training, and evaluating that uh, employee. 
Applicant tracking systems are uh, very worthwhile. It takes a bit of an investment, both in time and money. But for most companies, the cloud service have gotten so good now that they'll do some of the pre-testing. One of the things you'll hear me talk about, I write about in the book, is uh, assessments, uh, employee assessments. And during the interview process, one of the things that I recommend is that you do a career assessment. So many people apply for jobs that they're not really a good fit for, but they just need a job, need the money. And a, a career assessment will align their personality type with the job description and make sure that person is a fit for that particular position. So I do recommend assessments also along the way. And some of these uh, cloud services actually do some of those assessments. So those are the three major sources. Uh, Recruiters are very helpful, but you have to make sure that you filter your recruiters. Uh, A a true executive recruiter, you only want to use for your C-suite jobs. It's going to cost you 25, 35% of that first year salary to pay a recruiter. It's pretty expensive. And uh, there's good recruiters and bad recruiters out there, like in every industry. And there's good staffing agencies and bad staffing agencies. But the good ones really want to know you personally, your personality type as a CEO, whoever the manager is hiring for that, so that they understand both what the uh, company is looking for from a personality point of view, what the cultural fit is, and they clearly understand the job responsibilities. So many of these firms today, uh, all they are is pushing paper. They're just going to throw as many resumes out there as possible. And so you're not going to get the quality you want. So I recommend those recruiting agencies and staffing agencies, but do your homework. I've heard many of them offer a guarantee, but then from individuals that I know, when they've tried to enact that guarantee, there's always been some stipulation where it didn't apply to that. Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen one uh, actually pay off. So good observation. So we've got the job description. We've got some good candidates for that job description. Uh, We've done an assessment. So we've narrowed down some of those candidates. And now we've got, say, six really good candidates for that position. How should we go through the interview process? This really is the most important part of the process. So let's assume we've got a good filtering process, either through our staffing agency or our internal processes to narrow the candidates down. And one of the things I like to mention to people when you're looking at resumes, don't only look for the content of what the person has done uh, in their career. Look at the style. Style in this case is important as content. It always frustrates me. I use the example when I see a delivery service or uh, any kind of service to my home or business, and somebody pulls up in a dirty truck. It speaks volumes to me about what the quality of that company is. And so it is with uh, an employee resume. If there's typos in there or it's not organized or sentences aren't brief and clear, it really speaks loudly about the employee. So that begin with that. But once you invite somebody, you begin to narrow the list, you say six, begin with phone interviews, not a video conference. And the reason for this is you don't want to bring any of your stereotypes in to what the person's wearing or the color of their hair or any other stereotype you might have in an interview process. 
All you want to hear is the content of what they have to say about uh, their experiences and what they've done so that you can really focus in on that content and have no other distractions. Usually through that process, you're going to then narrow down your six to three. And once you have those three, the obvious next uh, step is to have them in the office. And so when you do that, set up interviews with multiple people. We all have different experiences in life. I talk about when, for example, if uh, the different perspectives people have, if there's a car accident in an intersection and the police officer goes to one corner and asks somebody what they've observed, he'll get one opinion. But if he goes to the four corners of that intersection, he'll get four different opinions. And so having a perspective of several people is very, very helpful. I recommend behavioral interview questions. Behavioral interview questions are simply questions that talk about, as the name implies, their behaviors, not what they've done. So a standard question would be, tell me what you did at XYZ Corporation. Well, that that really doesn't add a lot of meaning because you've already seen their resume. What you really want to know is how did you behave in a certain situation? So a good behavioral interview question is, uh, Trace, tell me about a time that you had a negative customer service experience uh, with a, a customer and what you did to resolve it as an employee. And so then they get to talk about how they behave. Tell me about a time that you were angered at a boss or an employee or a coworker and what you did to resolve that. We all get frustrated at work, right? So behavioral interview questions allow us to really understand the applicant. I then uh, suggest that people have a grading system. We have them out on our website. You can download these tools. uh, But a grading system allows everybody at the table, those uh, two or three or four perspectives of this candidate, to individually grade the candidate from their perspective and offer their notes. And then cumulatively, uh, that information together with an assessment, a personality assessment, is going to help you uh, identify the best candidate. A friend of mine will bring his top candidates into a conference room all together and group interview them. What do you think about that? I'm not as big on group interviews because people can prejudice other people's answers. And so uh, you said this, then I bounce that off, and you can have dominant uh, interviewers and, and somebody that, so someone else doesn't get a full perspective. So it's not my favorite style. I'd rather be one-on-one. It's easier for the candidate and the interviewer. You have clear results. People do group interviews to economize on time, and uh, you just don't get as good outcomes. You mentioned grading. So say we're going to have this candidate meet with three of our executives. How subjective is that grading? Because I might see something and grade it a certain way where somebody else is going to grade it totally different. It is subjective, absolutely. But you want to make it as objective as possible. And so uh, the grading tool I use grades candidates in, in five different categories. And so each of those five categories, you rank from one to five and then make your personal notes. But it's a cumulative effect of your perspective versus my perspective versus Sally's perspective. When you add those together, then you get a cumulative score that will grade and rank this candidate versus uh, other candidates. The fact is, 
I'm not a perfect candidate, and you're not a perfect candidate. No one is. But what we want to do is find the best candidate for this job that is available right now. And so when we take the time, and that's the biggest mistake employers make, is not taking the time to spend, because it is laborious. What we're talking about doing is laborious, right? But when you take the time, you don't have the turnover. And when you don't have the turnover, you save time. So it's slow, but it's a lot faster in the long run. It is. Good observation. I think I stole that from uh, Stephen Covey. He probably said it better, too. You mentioned personality assessments. Are there certain personalities that are better fits for certain jobs? Absolutely. So we use, a, a, and there's various tools out there. We use one I'll mention by name. I don't get any endorsement money, so it doesn't matter what tool you use, but we, our company uses CareerFitter. So what CareerFitter has done is they've gone out into industries and compiled a database of people that are happy in their career. And so they say, okay, and they, then they find out their personality type. And so they match the personality type with somebody who's happy in their career. And so when they do these assessments, it gives you grades back on people with your personality type tend to like these 10 or 15 types of careers. And it gives you a lot of other rich information as a new employer. But I, I find it very, very uh, helpful. I use the illustration a lot. If you went into accounting and you've got a sales personality type, you're going to be miserable. And if you went into sales, but you're really an accountant, you're going to be miserable. And so matching that job with experience, 60% of Americans are unhappy in their careers. That's sad. And some people get stuck in that career. And so these types of assessments, I used one when I was in college. I was going to be a dentist, Trace. And fortunately, it uh, directed me to being a consultant, being a business manager, doing what I do for a living. So it redirected me in a positive way before I started my career. Well, let's go back to the process where you, myself, and Sally interviewed this person. How should that meeting go where the three of us get together and we're now discussing candidates? Well, first of all, I talked about this grading instrument. So hopefully somebody has taken the time to compile that information. And so that's the objective part. And then the subjective part comes in. And there's there's things that aren't measured on a piece of paper or on an analytic that observations and conversations uh, could be had. Well, you know, they've got to work with so-and-so and they have this personality type or you be, have those conversations. So now those subjective conversations about the variety of things that may not have gone into the grade. And remember, you're selecting from your top three candidates. So you probably are maybe uh, discussing between the top two at this point and why, in some cases, maybe two graded lower, but for subjective reasons, you really feel like they're a better fit. Well, Mike, our committee of three has met. We've selected Steve for this job. But the problem is we don't know anything about Steve's background. Steve's going to be doing some driving for us. We don't know if he's got a good driving background. We don't know if he can drive a company vehicle. So how do we protect ourselves and offer a job when it's contingent on him being able to come back with clean reports? Yeah. And you do that either through a written communication or an email communication, but it does need to be in writing 
that we are uh, offering this job, but you do have to pass these other items, a background check, drug test, driving test, whatever those specific criteria are, but it does need to be in writing. Is the recommendation is we have them sign something while we offer them the job that they understand that? You do want to make sure that they received it. And so that uh, signature means that they've actually seen the the, uh, document. You can do it through an email electronically and and know that they opened it, and we can have uh, that as record too. But uh, signature is probably the very best way to go. And I say that's good advice. We had a candidate, and he was fantastic on paper. He interviewed well. We hired him. He was going to be doing a lot of driving. And our insurance agent said, there is no way you can put this guy into a company vehicle. So we had to backpedal. So the information you just gave would have been great about three years ago. I've seen a similar situation. One of my clients, uh, before I got involved, uh, hired an employee my first week in consulting with this client. This particular employee that they hired was leaving the client site, had gotten into a fight with one of their customers and spun out in the parking lot and spit dirt all over the uh, customer. Believe it or not, the customer stayed, but uh, they had uh, made a bad hire. So we've hired Steve. Now the true work begins. We have to onboard him properly. How should we start that process? I mentioned it before. uh, We need to be prepared. So generally somebody doesn't start for a couple of weeks after they're hired. Sometimes we have a short runway and, and we bring them on in the next day or two. That's rare. But Whatever gap in time we have, we need to be wise and spend the time to prepare. I usually recommend a checklist. What are the things that we need to get ready for them? Do I need to order some tools? Do I need to uh, set them up on a computer? Do I need to get them on an insurance policy? What are the things that we want them to be fully prepared when they, the day they start that they can hit the ground running? And I've done this so many times in my career, I can't tell you how special it makes an employee feel when they get there that day and their equipment's on their desk. There's a welcome package there. The team is here to greet them and take them around to uh, introduce them to coworkers. They take them to lunch that day. They feel like that they're a rock star because they just started with this company. They're the most important agenda item for that company that day. And when you do that with employees, they're going to start on such a great foot with your company that they're going to want to stay. I think that's great advice. Somebody told me a long time ago is to always make them feel welcome on the first day. And since that time, I always pre-order their business cards. Oh, great idea. Yeah. Uh, They know we're ready for them. Right. Those little details. So Steve came in, we had a great onboarding day or a couple of days, and now the true training for the position starts. How should we be doing that? So some thoughts here. Uh, you know, the, like anything else, there's uh, as many ways to train as there are companies out there. Here's what I think have become best practices. And as you and I are speaking today, Trace, we're winding down on a pandemic that's occurred uh, for the last year. And so why that's important for training is a lot of our clients are now asking for virtual training. They've realized that for years they've offered uh, training classes in their facilities 
a group of 5, 10, 20, 30 employees at one time that they're training, and they've had to uh, think differently now. And the win is here is if we invest as companies in uh, training, video training for our employees, those employees can do that on their off time. They can do it on their personal time where they can spend more time, quality time, and often have better benefit from the training. So it offers you as an employer uh, an opportunity to have a much wider suite of training options for them that they can train at their own pace when they're ready and when they're available. The common things that we do as companies is mentoring, right? So one driver trains another driver, one secretary uh, trains another secretary, one customer service representative trains another one. And so in that process, uh, they get to learn the values and processes that your company use. So certainly would not ignore a mentor process. I would think that would also give the person that's doing the mentoring some ownership in the success of this new person. Yeah, no doubt about it. And it's a pride factor for them because the, the mentor obviously knows policy, they know processes, they know the customers often that they're going to meet along the way or whatever the uh, process of the, the job is. And so it is a point of pride for them to be assigned to this role of mentoring somebody else. People respond to feedback if they don't know how they're doing, they don't know what they need to improve, they don't know what they're doing well at. How should we be giving this feedback to this new hire during this process? So these are traditional things companies have done. I do recommend a 90-day review so that people have that opportunity for feedback. I do like the fact that many companies uh, have a 90-day evaluation period, if you will, for new, new hires that allows both the employee and the employer an opportunity to reassess things. But that 90-day gives the new employee very tactical feedback on how they're performing and what they need to achieve in the next year. Outside of that, we as employers too often take the annual performance review process too much for granted. It's the greatest opportunity we have uh, as employers to give valid uh, tactical feedback to employees. And we need to take advantage of it. Spend the time. It's laborious, but spend the time, do it right, give them good feedback so they'll know what steps they need to take to improve. When you don't do that, often bad habits develop. And worse than that, it's sort of like passive-aggressive behaviors. We begin to get angry as an employee because we haven't given them feedback and they continue to repeat processes that we're unhappy with. Hopefully, this hire does great and he's with us for years. But let's just say that wasn't the cards that we were dealt. And we did a 90-day review and things weren't up to par. We probably met with Steve a couple of times, and he just wasn't doing the things to the level that we needed him to do them. And now we set him free to go find a job elsewhere. How should that process go to make sure that both sides are getting what they need? One of the things I tell clients is be slow to hire, quick to fire. This terminology that's been out there for a few years. And what that essentially means is we've talked about being intentional and elaborate in our hiring process, but when we make a determination that somebody's not a fit, we need to act quickly because it's in that employee's best interest 
And it's certainly in our customers and our fellow employees' best interest to let that person find the position for them outside of our company that's a great fit for them. So we want to be compassionate. We want to make sure that we take care of them, not necessarily financially, just give them a nice little severance. Whatever is reasonable and correct, because remember, that former employee could be a customer one day. We want to treat everybody with grace and compassion. So uh, they've got a family, they've got needs uh, too. So be thoughtful, be compassionate, but be quick. Mike, you've worked with a lot of customers throughout the years. Let's learn from some of your stories. So what is the best hiring practice you've ever seen from a company? And what's one of the worst hiring practices you've ever seen? So I'm going to mention a couple of uh, good examples. Uh, And surprisingly, uh, I write about this in the book. One was a, a church that had the best hiring practice that I'd ever seen. And they took people through a very slow a methodical process of interviewing several people. They not only did one assessment, they did several assessments. No matter how great the need was, they always took uh, two to three months to fill that position to make sure that culturally and in a lot of different ways, that employee was going to be a fit. So a lot of people got to meet the uh, new employee and there was a lot of testing. So a church was probably the best practice. The worst practices I've seen, I mentioned to you the story of uh, the employee that spun out of the parking lot. And this was the, the same company that had some of the worst hiring practices. They didn't take the time. First of all, they paid whatever the going rate was for all their jobs. And I don't necessarily recommend everybody has to play more But if you want better employees, you're probably going to want to pay a little bit more. And if you save the money on the turnover cost of your competitors, you can afford to pay more. And so if you pay more, you're going to get a better quality employee. Well, this particular company paid just the minimum of what they had. When I was involved with them, they had uh, one that was a prison release. And that was great. To uh, He's actually still there today. That sounds scary, but it was a, a rebuild process. But they had such some really challenges and a lot of turnover at that lower level. So if you want to do it right, you have to take the time, as we've talked about, spend the time, make sure that your salaries are competitive or better than your competitors, and you have a process that makes people feel special. When you're like that, the reputation will get around for your company, and employers are going to want to work there. Mike, if you can only get one message across to the Scaling Up Nation today about hiring, what do you want it to be? I think we've already mentioned it uh, before, is to take your time, uh, be slow, be deliberate, make hiring a priority for your company. I mentioned it earlier in our discussion that we didn't get into our business to be professional hiring agents. We like selling, we like building, we like servicing, we like doing all these other things. But if you want this company to grow into the jewel that you want it to be, you're going to have to uh, replicate what you've created because you're motivated as a CEO. We're all motivated to create a great company. Well, we've got to hire that and replicate that because we're not always going to be around. One day we'll leave the company and we've got to create a legacy in those employees of what we believe our values and our qualities and our processes. So 
take your time, do it right. Well, Mike, before we get to the lightning round, I've got one more question for you. Somebody leaves the company and then later they decide they want to come back. I've got a friend of mine that says that's the worst decision a business owner can ever make. How do you feel about that? I disagree. If they were a good employee and you had a good experience with them, I'd hire them back uh, in a minute. Now, where I would say the opposite is true is when I see employees leverage their current company for a salary increase. When somebody says, well, I've been out interviewing and I found out I can get this salary, you've got somebody that's not loyal. It's not wrong for them to ask for a, a pay increase. But to do it under the circumstances of, well, uh, essentially what an equivalent of a threat, if, if you don't give me this raise, I'm leaving. Uh, even if you do give them the raise, they're probably going to leave down the road uh, anyway, because you're never going to be able to satisfy them through just a salary increase. So for somebody that's listening today and they are thinking about approaching their boss for a salary increase, how should they have that conversation? Ah, it's a good question. Just be frank about it. You know, here's the accomplishments I've achieved. You had set these goals for me, boss, and this is what I've accomplished in the time that I've been here. Uh, here's what industry standards are for this position. I'd like you to consider that this might be a more appropriate salary for me at this stage and do it in a collaborative way, not a threatening way, so that your boss sees the numbers and sees, well, you know, this is a great employee. I don't want to lose them. So uh, I want to invest in them. And if you do it in a collaborative way, not a threatening way, they're going to usually collaborate and, and uh, you're going to win that argument. That is great advice. Well, let's move on to the lightning round questions. These are questions that I ask of all of my guests and we just kind of compare to see how people answer. So I'm going to give you a superpower, and that superpower is you can go back in time and you can talk to your former self on your first day as a business consultant. What advice would you give yourself? It's really to trust my instincts and, and be confident in the knowledge that I've acquired. Uh, I go back to the first day when I was with Ernst & Young and I got a business card, and the business card said senior consultant. And I thought to myself, senior to what? I didn't have that confidence at that time, but I had a lot more knowledge than I thought I did. And so trust your instincts and be confident in the knowledge and experience you do have. And uh, I hear that in uh, speakers a lot. Find your voice. And when you do that, uh, you'll do a great job. So that's what I would tell myself. What are the last few books that you've read? Good question. Um, I love reading. And so I read business books, but I, I read a lot of history and I read historical fiction are my three favorite genres. So I'm going to give you a couple of books. Uh, Speed of Trust by Stephen R. Covey, uh, Stephen Covey Jr., was a great book uh, about the collateral of trust that we build in, the, in, in our workplaces and how important both with employees and coworkers, but with our customers, how important trust is. I read a book by uh, Brian Kilamead called George Washington's Secret Six. Uh, they actually turned it, I believe, into a TV show called Turn, but it was about the spies that George Washington used in uh, the Revolutionary War. Trenton Consulting was based on the war at Trenton 
that's where the name comes from. I, I love early American history. And so that's why uh, it was a turning point for the war. And engaging Trenton is often a turning point for my clients. And so uh, anyway, I love all things early American history. That's a great book. And then historical fiction was the Tehran Initiative uh, by Joel Rosenstein. And it talks about the, the Middle East, nuclear arms. And he is so intelligent about his knowledge of uh, the Middle East and cultures and Americans and Europeans and world observations about the Middle East. It was fascinating. He's got a series of books he's written out there. So those are the recent reads of mine. Well, they will be added to my reading list, uh, except for the first one. I actually, uh, I read The Speed of Trust. I've, I've uh, been a facilitator for that program. I actually got to meet Covey Jr. He was at a speaking event. And have you read Seven Habits? Oh, absolutely. Uh, he was at our table. We had a bunch of different round tables. And I think everybody had like eight people or 10 people. We had four. So he got off stage, he came over, he sat down with us and kind of did our project with us. And then he ate lunch with me. Wow. And it was it was right before his father passed away. And I asked him, I said, okay, you're the guy in the green and clean story. If you remember that from Seven Habits, that's where he was seven years old and he had to take care of the lawn. And his father said, you can do it however you want. But the goal, the end result is we want green, we want clean. And then he goes on to say he did nothing. So I asked Covey Jr., I said, what is your take of this story? And he looked at me square in the eye and he said, I was seven. So, but that, that was just a really, really fun time to, to talk about. I always with resonated with Stephen Cover Sr. because I, I'm a cyclist too, and uh, he uh, unfortunately died cycling, but... Uh, Brilliant mind, and uh, I hope I'm privileged to meet the sun sometime myself. Well, before we get off the book topic, you've just recently written a book. It's doing extremely well. Tell us a little bit about that. So I call it my COVID book, Trace. Uh, I wrote, wrote it during the COVID crisis when uh, we were all locked in at home, and it's the old lemonade out of lemons. I uh, had extra time. And it's something I always contemplated. I think a lot of us think, well, one day I might write a book. And so I was one of those. Never thought I would get around to it, especially at this age. I thought I would be uh, much older when I uh, got around to writing a book. I put the process together. I just started assembling topics on a piece of paper, then assembled in the chapters. And I said, well, we'll write the introduction, then chapter one. And it rolled out. Uh, it, I wrote it in about six months. It's a fun experience, except for the editing part. That was another three or four months of uh, pretty arduous work. But, uh, you know, I, I, it's a proud accomplishment to, to say you've written a book. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm uh, really excited about it. It's called The Extraordinary Business, and uh, it's about moving beyond what is ordinary for a business. And so uh, we talk about a whole suite of topics in the book from human resources that we just talked about, management, governance finance and accounting, sales and marketing, branding. So it's a wide suite of topics for a typical business leader. Well, Mike, Hollywood listens to the Scaling Up H2O podcast all the time to figure out what the next hit movie is going to be about. They're going to hear this. They're going to want to make a movie about your life. Who plays you? <laughs> Funny question. Uh, 
You know, I, I don't know that uh, anybody would want to play me, but if uh, somebody that I respect a lot in Hollywood uh, for his values and uh, what he stands for both on and off screen is Kirk Cameron. And so I would probably be most honored if uh, Kirk Cameron played me uh, because of the quality of his character. Well, I got to say, sitting across from you, I could see Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I think uh, Clint Eastwood wouldn't say that, but uh, I appreciate that. All right. My final question. You now have the power to speak with anybody throughout history. Who would it be with and why? I'm not good at the one person. So answering the one person, but certainly the first on the list is uh, Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't want to talk to God, right? So going back in that time, in that period when he was on earth, I would love to uh, spend some time with him. Uh, you've already mentioned, heard me mention George Washington, uh, one of the most fascinating characters in history, proud forefather and first president of our nation, would love to uh, meet him. And then Abraham Lincoln is another great character that uh, was so astute and such a great leader that uh, he truly was, as we talk about in the book, an extraordinary leader, that uh, those three are the ones that I would love. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for coming on the Scaling Up H2L podcast. I know I learned a tremendous amount of some things we could be doing a little bit better in our hiring practice, and I want to thank you for that, and we'll be sure to put an affiliate link so people can go straight to Amazon and get your book. Sure, and they can go to our website, trentonconsulting.com. We have resources out there they can download. We've got a YouTube channel that they can connect with and learn very tactical uh, how-tos in business. So all those resources. Thank you, Trace. Well, I know we all love to hire people. We never enjoy the process to find the right candidate. So it's my hope that Mike has taught us all something that you are probably going to go back and re-listen to this episode and take some notes and make sure that whatever your hiring procedure is, you're utilizing some of these options so you can take advantage of every single second that you are spending trying to hire that it is getting traction. Many of you join the hang each and every time that we do it. It's one of my favorite things to do. We get to meet a bunch of new water treaters and several people. They are on each and every time that we do the hang. Well, folks, I'm sure you want to know when the next hang is going to be. Well, it's going to be on August 12th. Of course, we start that at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Folks, there have been as many as 139 people on the hang. You never know who is going to be on the hang, and you never know who you're going to meet that has the answer to that question that you need to get answered. You might meet somebody who sells a piece of equipment that you need to solve the issue that you are trying to solve. The hang is fun. We get to do some networking and you get to carry that forward in your day-to-day -day business. So I hope to see you on August 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern time. If you want to register and why wouldn't you want to register, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash hang. Someone once told me you always want to hire slow and fire quick. And although that's a great thing to say, what I really think that they meant to say was you need to do your due diligence in 
the hiring process. So the things that Mike mentioned, the things that you're probably already doing already, make sure you do them. If you have an urgent need to hire somebody right now, it does not mean that you need to speed up your process to get somebody in that seat. In fact, probably what that's going to do is that's going to slow down your entire company. Because if you don't get the right person in that seat the first time, it is going to take more effort. It is going to take more time and it is going to put you further behind the eight ball than where you are right now. So please make sure that you are following everything that you need to do, and hopefully you will get the right person on the first try, but make sure that that person doesn't get to stay just because you hired them. That person gets to stay because they earn the right to stay. Trust me, keeping a bad person in your company will not do anything but upset the other good people in your company. Well, I hope you got some great information on today's episode, and I'll be sure to have a brand new one for you next week on Scaling Up H2O. One of the things I hear so often about the Rising Tide Mastermind is about how well the members in the Rising Tide Mastermind listen to other people. Folks, we are programmed to give quick advice even if we don't have all the information. Through the issue-solving track that we practice in the Rising Tide Mastermind, you will learn how to ask better questions so you can give better advice and that will shorten the road for whatever issue you're trying to solve. To find out more, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash mastermind.